This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World in Seventy-Two Days by Nellie Bly Read by Mary Reagan Chapter 8 Aden to Colombo Hiring a large boat, I went ashore with a half-dozen acquaintances who felt they could risk the sun. The four oarsmen were black fellows, thin of limb, but possessed of much strength and tireless good humor. They have, as have all the inhabitants of Aden, the finest white teeth of any mortals. This may be due to the care they take of them and the manner of that care. From some place, I am unable to state where, as I fail to see one living thing growing at Aden, they get tree branches of a soft, fibrous wood, which they cut into pieces three and four inches in length. With one end of this stick, scraped free of the bark, they rub and polish their teeth until they are perfect in their whiteness. The wood wears into a soft pulp, but as one can buy a dozen sticks for a penny, one can well afford to throw the stick away after once using, although, if necessary, a stick can be used many times. I bought several sticks and found them the most efficient as well as the pleasant toothbrush I had ever tried. I felt to regret that some enterprising firm had not thought of importing this useful bit of timber to replace the tooth-destroying brush used in America. The man in charge of the boat that carried us to land was a small black fellow with the thinnest legs I ever saw. Somehow they reminded me of smoked herrings. They were so black, flat, and dried-looking. He was very gay, notwithstanding his lack of weight. Around his neck and over his bare breast were twined strings of beads, black and gold and silver. Around his waist was a highly colored sash, and on his arms and ankles were heavy bracelets, while his fingers and toes seemed to be trying to outdo one another in the way of rings. He spoke English quite well, and to my rather impertinent question as to what number constituted his family, he told me that he had three wives and eleven children, which number, he added piously, by the grace of the power of his faith, he hoped to increase. His hair was yellow, which, added to his very light dress of jewelry and sash, gave him rather a strange look, the bright yellow hair and the black skin forming a contrast which was more startling than the black eyes and yellow hair that flashed upon the astonished vision of the American public some years ago, but has become since an old and tiresome sight. Some of the boatmen had their black wool pasted down and hidden under a coating of lime. I was very curious about it, until the first man explained that they were merely bleaching their hair, that it was always done by covering the head with lime, which, being allowed to remain on for several days, exposed to the hot sun and the water, bleached the hair yellow or red at the expiration of that time. This bleaching craze, he also informed me, was confined to the men of Aden. So far, none of the women had tried to enhance their black beauty in that way, but it was considered very smart among the men. While we were talking, our men were vigorously pulling to the tune of a rousing song, one line of which was sung by one man, the others joining in the refrain at the end. Their voices were not unpleasant, and the air had a monotonous rhythm that was very fascinating. We landed at a well-built pier and walked up the finely cut white stone steps from the boat to the land. Instantly we were surrounded by half-clad black people, all of whom, after the manner of hack-drivers at railway stations, were clamoring for our favor. They were not all drivers, however. Mingling with the drivers were merchants with jewelry, ostrich plumes and boas to sell, runners for hotels, beggars, cripples, and guides. 
this conglomeration besought us to listen to every individual one of them until a native policeman in the queen's uniform came forward and pushed the black fellows back with his hands sometimes hastening their retreat with his boot a large board occupied a prominent position on the pier on it was marked the prices that should be paid drivers boatmen and like people it was indeed a praiseworthy thoughtfulness that caused the erection of that board for it prevented tourists being robbed i looked at it and thought that even in that land there was more precaution taken to protect helpless and ignorant strangers than in new york city where the usual custom of night hackmen is to demand exorbitant prices and if they are not forthcoming to pull off their coats and fight for it perched on the side of this bleak bare mountain is a majestic white building reached by a fine road cut in the stone that forms the mountain it is a clubhouse erected for the benefit of the english soldiers who are stationed on this barren spot in the harbor lay an English man-of-war, and near a point where the land was most level, numbers of white tents were pitched for soldiers. From the highest peak of the black rocky mountain, probably seventeen hundred feet above sea level, floated the English flag. As I traveled on, and realized more than ever before how the English have stolen almost all, if not all, desirable seaports, I felt an increased respect for the level-headedness of the English government and I cease to marvel at the pride with which Englishmen view their flag floating in so many different climes and over so many different nationalities. Near the pier were shops run by Parsees. A hotel, post office, and telegraph office are located in the same place. The town of Aden is five miles distant. We hired a carriage and started at a good pace on a wide, smooth road that took us along the beach for a way, passing low rows of houses, where we saw many miserable, dirty-looking natives, past a large graveyard liberally filled which looked like the rest of that stony point bleak black and bare the graves often being shaped by cobblestones the roads at aden are a marvel of beauty they are wide and as smooth as hardwood and as they twist and wind in pleasing curves up the mountain they are made secure by a high smooth wall against mishap Otherwise, their steepness might result in giving tourists a serious roll down a rough mountainside. Just before we began to ascend, we saw a black man at his devotions. He was kneeling in the center of a little square formed by rocks. His face was turned heavenward, and he was oblivious to all except the power before which he was laying bare his inmost soul, with a fervor and devotion that commanded respect, even from those who thought of him as a heathen. I inferred that he was a sun-worshipper from the way in which he constantly had his face turned upward, except when he bent forward to kiss the ground on which he knelt. On the road we saw black people of many different tribes. A number of women, I noticed, who walked proudly along, their brown, bare feet stepping lightly on the smooth road. They had long, purple-black hair, which was always adorned with a long, stiff feather, dyed of a brilliant red, green, purple, and like striking shades. They wore no other ornament than the colored feather, which lent them an air of pride when seen beside the much-bejeweled people of that quaint town. Many of the women, who seemed very poor indeed, were lavishly dressed in jewelry. They did not wear much else, it is true, but in a place as hot as Aden, jewelry must be as much as anyone would care to wear. To me the sight of these perfect bronze-like women, with a graceful drapery of thin silk wound about the waist, falling to the knees, and a corner taken up and back and brought across the bust, was most bewitching. On their bare, perfectly molded arms were heavy bracelets, around the wrist and muscle, most times joined by chains. Bracelets were also worn about the ankles, and their fingers and toes were laden with rings. 
Sometimes large rings were suspended from the nose, and the ears were almost always outlined with hoop rings that reached from the inmost edge of the lobe to the top of the ear joining the head. So closely were these rings placed that, at a distance, the ear had the appearance of being rimmed in gold. A more pleasing style of nose ornament was a large gold ornament set in the nostril and fastened there as screw rings fasten in the ear. Still, if that nose ornamentation was more pleasing than the other, the ear adornment that accompanied it was disgusting. The lobe of the ear was split from the ear and pulled down to such length that it usually rested on the shoulder. The enormous loop of flesh was partially filled with large gold knobs. At the top of the hill we came to a beautiful, majestic stone double gate, the entrance to the English fort and also spanning the road that leads to the town. Sentinels were pacing to and fro, but we drove past them without stopping or being stopped, through a strange narrow cut in the mountain that towered at the sides a hundred feet above the roadbed. Both these narrow perpendicular sides are strongly fortified. It needs but one glance at Aden, which is itself a natural fort, to strengthen the assertion that Aden is the strongest gate to India. The moment we emerged from the cut, which, besides being so narrow that two carriages pass with great difficulty, is made on a dangerous steep grade, we got a view of the white town of Aden, nestling in the very heart of what seems to be an extinct volcano. We were driven rapidly down the road, catching glimpses of gaudily attired mounted policemen, water carriers from the bay with their well-filled goatskins flung across their backs, camels loaded with cut stone, and black people of every description. When we drove into the town, which is composed of low adobe houses, our carriage was surrounded with beggars. We got out and walked through an unpaved street, looking at the dirty, uninviting shops and the dirty, uninviting people in and about them. Very often we were urged to buy, but more frequently the natives stared at us with quiet curiosity. In the heart of the town we found the camel market, but beyond a number of camels standing, lying, and kneeling about, the sight was nothing extraordinary. Nearby was a goat market, but business seemed dull in both places. Without buying anything, we started to return to the ship. Little naked children ran after us for miles, touching their foreheads humbly and crying for money. They all knew enough English to be able to ask us for charity. When we reached the pier, we found our driver had forgotten all the English he knew when we started out. He wanted one price for the carriage, and we wanted to pay another. It resulted in our appealing to a native policeman, who took the right change from us, handed it to the driver, and gave him, in addition, a lusty kick for his dishonesty. Our limited time prevented our going to see the water tanks, which are some miles distant from Aden. When we returned to the ship we found Jews there, selling ostrich eggs and plumes, shells, fruit, spears of swordfish, and such things. In the water, on one side of the boat, were numbers of men, Somali boys, they called them, who were giving an exhibition of wonderful diving and swimming. They would actually sit in the water, looking like bronze statues, as the sun rested on their wet black skin. They sat in a row, and turning their faces up towards the deck, would yell methodically, one after the other, down the entire line, Oh, yo, ho! It sounded very like a chorus of bullfrogs, and was very amusing. After finishing the strange music, they would give us a duet, half crying persuasively in a sing-song style, Have a dive! Have a dive! Have a dive! The other half, meanwhile, would put their hands before their widely opened mouths, yelling through their rapidly moving fingers with such energy that we gladly threw over silver to see them dive in and stop the din. The moment the silver flashed over the water, all the bronze figures would disappear like flying fish. 
and looking down we would see a few ripples on the surface of the blue water, nothing more. After a time that seemed dangerously long to us, they would bob up through the water again. We could see them coming before they finally appeared on the surface, and one among the number would have the silver between his teeth, which would be most liberally displayed in a broad smile of satisfaction. Some of these divers were children, not more than eight years old, and they ranged from that up to any age. Many of them had had their hair bleached. As they were completely naked, excepting a small cloth twisted about the loins, they found it necessary to make a purse out of their cheeks, which they did with as much ease as a cow stows away grass to chew at her leisure. I have often envied a cow this splendid gift. One wastes so much time eating, especially when traveling, and I could not help picturing the comfort it would be sometimes to dispose of our food wholesale and consume it at our leisure afterwards. I am certain there would be fewer dyspeptics then. No animal, waterborne and bred, could frisk more gracefully in the water than do these Somali boys. They swim about, using the legs alone or the arms alone, on their backs or sides, and in most cases with their faces under water. They never get out of the way of a boat. They merely sink and come up in the same spot when the boat passes. The bay at Aden is filled with sharks, but they never touch these black men, so they tell me, and the safety with which they spend their lives in the water proves the truth of the assertion. They claim that a shark will not attack a black man, and after I caught the odor of the grease with which these men anoint their bodies, I did not blame the sharks. After a seven-hour stay at Aden, we left for Colombo, being followed a long ways out from the land by the divers. One little boy went out with us on the ship, and when he left us, he merely took a plunge from the upper deck into the sea, and went happily back towards Aden on his side, waving a farewell to us with his free hand. The passengers endeavored to make the time pass pleasantly between Aden and Colombo. The young women had some tableau vivant one evening, and they were really very fine. In one they wished to represent the different countries. They asked me to represent America, but I refused, and then they asked me to tell them what the American flag looked like. They wanted to represent one as nearly as possible, and to rise it to drape the young woman who was to represent America. Another evening we had a lantern slide exhibition that was very enjoyable. The loyalty of the English to their queen on all occasions and at all times had won my admiration. Though born and bred a staunch American, with the belief that a man is what he makes of himself, not what he was born, still I could not help admiring the undying respect the English have for their royal family. During the lantern slide exhibition, the queen's picture was thrown on the white sheet and evoked warmer applause than anything else that evening. We never had an evening's amusement that did not end by everybody rising to their feet and singing God Save the Queen. I could not help but think how devoted that woman, for she is only a woman after all, should be to the interests of such faithful subjects. With that thought came to me a shamed feeling that there I was, a free-born American girl, the native of the grandest country on earth, forced to be silent because I could not in honesty speak proudly of the rulers of my land unless I went back to those two kings of manhood, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. End of chapter 8